Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hi there, it's Allison. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we have another guest on our show. I'm excited to introduce you to Sabrina Adair. She is a practicing occupational therapist and a passionate advocate for parent empowerment and the author of a book entitled Understanding a Child the Occupational Therapy Way, Recognizing and Communicating the Unique Potential of a Child, which just came out this year and I just finished reading and quite enjoyed. She is a mom of four beautiful children who have taught her patience, perseverance and compassion and that we're all wonderfully unique individuals with our own unfolding stories. Sabrina's experience working with children has inspired her drive for innovation and interprofessional collaboration. In 2019, she founded Enabling Adaptations, a private therapy company focused on helping parents and caregivers to find ways to effectively understand and communicate their children's needs in order to create positive environments where children can reach their greatest potential. Sabrina is an award-winning entrepreneur and shares her successful approach to improving children's lives at speaking engagements, parenting workshops, and more. Sabrina holds a post-professional Master's of Science in Occupational Therapy for Dalhousie University and a Bachelor of Science in Occupational Therapy from the State University of New York at Buffalo. Sabrina resides just outside Toronto, Ontario with her husband and children. Welcome to the show, Sabrina. Hi, Allison. Thanks for having me. So, I want to thank you for sending me a copy of your book, and uh, I really enjoyed reading it, and we're going to be talking about it in our conversation today. But you opened the book by describing what an occupational therapist is, and uh, you enlightened me, because even though here I am as a family counselor, and I hear this profession, you know, is is referred to in, in writing and literature, and I should know... You described it so well that I understood it more deeply, and I want the parents that are listening to this podcast to have the same understanding that I came to know after reading your book. So would you mind sharing 
uh, more deeply what an occupational, what it is that you do and, and how the profession came to be so parents understand it better? For sure. So I get this question a lot because occupation, the term occupation, um, people often think of our job, that's our occupation. So my parents say to me all the time, I, well, my, my child doesn't have a job, so they don't need an occupational therapist. Um, but a child's job is actually to be a child and that's their job when they're little. So their job is to play, their job is to learn, their job is to, you know, even things like getting dressed in the morning is part of our job as a person, as a human being. And so um, how occupational therapy came to be was as a profession was understanding what it takes for us to have meaningful and purposeful lives and to be able to give back. And so during the wartime, when people got injured in the war and they weren't able to fight anymore, they needed to have something that would occupy their time and give them some meaningful work that could contribute back to society. So when they went back to their families, they'd be able to do something. And so they ended up getting them to do hands-on activities that were meaningful, purposeful, gave them that ability to give back, like I said. And so from that, they started to realize that when people have purpose and meaning in their lives, then they are able to be, have a more fulfilled life. And so occupational therapy was kind of born out of that um, to understand that what we do with our lives and how we do it and where we do it is such an important and integral part in how we function on a daily basis. So the things that we need to do during the day. And so occupational therapy in terms of working with children really focuses on how can children be the best child that they can be? How do they do their regular everyday activities like getting dressed, brushing their teeth? How do they participate in school? How do they participate in their family? How do they participate in different environments? Um, and to be able to lead a most fulfilled um, be able to give back um, and to be able to have a purposeful and um, good life. That's so beautiful and so compatible with Adlerian psychology, that, that that's part of the human psyche, that we all need to feel that we have a meaningful contribution to make, that our, that our life here on the planet serves a purpose. And, uh, and that we belong. And, and maybe can I springboard to that next, Sabrina? Because you, you, you also, and, and I thank you very much for citing Adlerian psychology and some of our authors in your work. So I know we're like-minded. But you also talk about the importance of a child's belonging in the classroom, which I think sometimes gets skirted over too quickly, not only from parents, but also from, from teachers who might not understand this perspective of, of children's development. Yeah, so in, in terms of a child, this kind of goes back to the sense of belonging is that sense where you feel like you fit in, like you're a valuable member, which again goes to that Adelirian. Mm -hmm. But it, it also is a being recognized for who you are. So in a classroom environment, every child is going to experience that environment very differently and also has the ability to connect and feel like they belong in different ways. So I touch a little bit on um, some of the love languages and how children recognize that somebody appreciates them or values them in my book, because recognizing that a child is, um, is a valuable member, some children will re respond to words like, you know, good job, Joey, you did great. Or some children, you know, that doesn't mean a lot to them, but if the teacher came and sat next to them or gave them a high five or, you know, came close to them, that makes them feel like they belong. When children feel like they belong, they can almost breathe a sigh of relief and they can almost let their bodies calm down, which is part of the self-regulation. So self-regulation is where you can, you regulate your system and you can, you can feel um, a calmer sense. So when you're not self-regulated, that's when you get anxious and you get a little bit uh, worked up. And sometimes you can have your meltdowns, you can have your explosions of emotion. But when you're regulated, it's when you're in that state where you can then 
have the appreciation to learn and you can um, you know, be a valued member, be able to contribute because your body is not seeking that sense of belonging from other people. So tell me if this rings true for you, uh, the way I describe it to parents, as I say, it, um, school's about the ABCs. So acceptance is the A, B is belonging, and C is curriculum. That's the third thing. And that a little bit like when you take CPR training, there's there's no sense, you know, there's an order that you do it because, you know, and, and I'm going to forget the order, but you know, whatever, clear the airway before pounding on the heart. Like, if you've got a child who doesn't feel like they belong or they're they're not showing up in the way that they end up being so emotionally dysregulated, you're not going to be able to teach them the capitals of the European countries. You know, they're, they're still trying to figure out the basic, almost, you know, Maslow hierarchy of need survival fitting in kind of a thing. And, um, and we need to appreciate that there's this other psychological process going on for them. For sure. And to get to a sense of, of being able to belong is feeling that connection. But one of the things that's hard for kids to do when they're when they're not regulated, for example, environmental influences are much greater than people actually give credit to. So there are a lot of children I work with that really want to belong in a classroom, but are constantly barraged with a lot of sounds that they can't necessarily filter very well. So in, when they hear these sounds, it's distracting to them. I have one child, um, one family that I'm working with that was born and raised in a war-torn country and constantly was fear of somebody coming into their classroom or constantly fear of bombs going off. And so his attention and his sensory system is always on high alert. So if he hears a, a sound behind him, he right away will turn to it. And he's completely lost the focus of, of being able to focus on the teacher. And so that is constant throughout the day. He's constantly in a fight and flight with his brain because of the environment that he's in. And so one of the things is recognizing those environmental influences will then influence his ability to even accept this sense of belonging. So he needs to know that he's safe, that you know, we recognize this, the sounds are going to affect him and then have that connection as well. And that all, like you said, comes way before the curriculum part of it. Yeah. And so, um, and then I guess, you know, working with an occupational therapist, you have to recognize that. And then I, I know that I have clients in my practice that actually have like work with, have made accommodations that they can work with headphones on or whatever, but how do we get there? How do we, how would a teacher recognize that this was a child that was not emotionally regulating or how would a parent know that this comes because I come from this family that's immigrated and we come from a war-torn country. So, you know, the, the, the level of, of volume in the classroom or the lunchroom is, is triggering to my kid. I don't think most parents would know that they would just see a kid who, who was getting in trouble or going to the principal's office. Or, or looks like they're lazy or, or acting out like, you know, how, how would they even know to seek out the help to see it through the great perspective that you bring? And that's where I really changed my practice to focus on parents and caregivers and teachers to be able to look beyond that with a sense of curiosity. So that's where with my book, I wrote in a process of understanding First and foremost, you as a parent or caregiver or teacher, your own perspective of how you are seeing a child. Because how you see a child is, is going to influence how you treat the child, right? So knowing where to begin is understanding that when you see a child behaving in a certain way, you have to first say, okay, is this a behavior or is this a reaction of something else? So majority of the time, behavior is a result of something else. And we have to figure out what that something else is. And that something else could be 
It could be the environmental stuff. So you need to look at, is this behavior consistent in multiple environments with the same kind of um, triggers? So is it always in loud environments that this behavior comes up? Is it always with a certain sound? I have it with kids that, you know, just have a new baby brother or sister at home that cries all the time. And it's that sound of crying that's the trigger for them. So anytime at school somebody cries, they have a, a reaction. And so it's figuring out, okay, what's the consistency in this? And then throughout it, looking at, okay, if it's, if it's not environmental, is it, do they always have these behaviors when we ask them to do a, a writing activity, when we're asking them to sit down and do a hands-on activity, then is it the frustration of them being able to hold onto a pencil? Is it them being able to comprehend what the instructions are? You know, every time we start a lesson, are they behind because they don't know how to, they don't know where to begin? Then is it the way we gave our instructions? So let's try changing the instructions. So what I always say to parents is have this lens of curiosity. Teachers have this lens of curiosity. Is it consistent that you're always seeing similar behaviors at similar times? And with that, what is the same features of that environment or that sensory world that's going on around them or their auditory world? And, and being able to understand, okay, these are the things. And that's when you're like, okay, there's some consistency here. How can I break these down and how can I learn strategies? That's when you reach out to an OT. Or even when you're just like, my child has the behaviors all the time. We work through trying to figure out the consistency. And you also make a point in the book as, as you're inviting your, one of your big takeaways that we really want parents to, to, to hear and teachers, right? That are people that are working with children, caregivers, whoever is working with children, to bring that curiosity, right? What would have to be true for this behavior to make sense? That's just such a beautiful lens to start to start looking at. But then you also say, and appreciate that as you're being curious and you're trying to figure out this child for the first time and trying to figure out the patterns, you have to accommodate or, or take into consideration that you yourself had a life journey and a history that might skew what you see or how you interpret as you're being curious. So, so can you say more about that? Yeah, so I think our, we don't have, so children don't come with a manual of how to deal with them, like deal with a child, right? They don't have a parenting book that says this is how you deal with this child. So what we are basing our parenting on is our experiences being parented. So depending on how you were parented or how you were raised, the community you're raised and the people that were involved in your life, that's how you're going to approach the kids that you are working with or the kids that, that you have. And so I take you on a journey in the book a little bit to recognize what was your childhood like and what influenced what you did. Because some of the triggers or the reactions that you're going to have to your child that may or may not necessarily be un unusual for a child of that age or for, you know, a you know, teen going into teen. But what triggers you and makes it worse for you could be something from your childhood, the way you were treated when you did something bad at your house or the, the penalties that you had or the structure that you had or the lack of structure that you had. Um, and so you either change, it will influence how you work with your child. Um, it may make it that, you know, every time you hear a cry, you get really triggered and then you get really angry and you respond with anger to your child, which makes them angry and it just ripples into a bigger effect. And the reason why you get angry when you cry or when they cry is because you used to get in trouble when you made noises when you were little. So there's just a play into what happened to you and to what you're, how you're going to treat these other kids. It's the same with teachers. I find that teachers who had a really good experience with teachers in school um, and, or had a really good experience at school or school was really easy for them. They didn't have a, they didn't have necessarily the same challenges as some of the other kids. They became teachers because they love school so much. 
but they didn't necessarily always see the other side of school where you had to struggle and work hard and it was hard to sit in classrooms. And so recognizing it was easy for you, but it may not be easy for other kids. Um, it can be hard for teachers sometimes. That's such a great point. Uh, you know, I see that play out in in the sibling set where if we look at Adlerian family constellation, where each child in the family has to find their own unique vantage point, their own way of being different, their own strengths, you know, who am I in this group of people or whatever. And you, it's not uncommon that you'll have one child who becomes the very good child, the golden child, and the other one then has to sort of live in the shadow of that. And they become kind of the, the bad, you know, if I can't be good at being good, I'll be good at being bad. And it's interesting because when you try to explain this to teachers or or parents that were the good child they really have a hard time understanding how they made a shadow on someone else how how their goodness could have been discouraging to other people and they're just like why don't they just work harder why don't they just get over it it's like you've never been there you don't you don't under it's really hard to try to walk the life in the shoes of somebody who struggled at school who didn't want to be called to the board that felt that they were the dumb dumb that you know really needed very different things from their teachers and um, if that hasn't been part of your experience you yourself have to really dig deep to try to see what would it be like to be that kid because i only have i it all came easy to me and i did well at school and i liked school and i was always in in with the good crowd and i was always the teacher's helper and it all went smoothly why isn't it like that for everybody else and it's like oh my gosh school is like a traumatic experience for a lot of people yeah, and that's why in my book, I really tried to use a lot of examples that don't necessarily respond to your own thing. It's like, you know, trying to do a puzzle without knowing what the picture is, right? Or um, trying to read on a roller coaster. Like those things are super challenging for general people that you would understand. Yeah, why would you read on a roller coaster? Well, you wouldn't read on a roller coaster because that's not the right environment. But for some kids, when there's so much going on, it feels like they are trying to read on a roller coaster. So that's where I tried to make it aware so that parents can sometimes grasp some sort of sense of what their kid is going through, recognizing that their child is not them. Like their child is their, is their own human being, is their own person with their own experiences of the world. And we can't criticize them for that because that's who they are as a child, right? You know, thinking about those, like, what is it, onculus or whatever, those little vision things that you can put on so you can see what the world is like if you have, um, like, cataracts or this is what the world looks like if you, like, are somebody who loses peripheral vision. And, like, wouldn't it be great if we could do that psychologically where we could put on that and say, this is what it's like to read in a roller coaster. Well, that's actually what your classroom looks like when you're a kid that has this learning issue or this sensory processing issue or or whatever. So it's like, oh, oh, I get it, you know. And that's where I tried to recognize that like every child has their own way of experience the world. It doesn't have to necessarily do with a disability. It doesn't necessarily have to do with a learning need per se. Every child is going to have these meltdowns or these where they are on inability to self-regulate, where they're overwhelmed, right? Um, and I tried to say to parents, we as parents also have that happening in our own bodies, right? I, I, you know, when you get in the car in the morning, a good song is on the radio, you crank the song up, you, you know, you're feeling great, but you sing the song. If you forget to turn the radio off when you get to work, um, right? And then at the end of the day, when you're exhausted, when you're tired, you get back into your car. And when you turn your car on, the radio is just as loud as it was when you were listening to this morning. Now this morning, it sounded great. You were into it. 
at night, you're like, wow, that's too loud. And you turn it down, right? Your body's ability to react to the sensory world around us changes depending on how self-regulated you are. Now we as adults know how to turn down the radio, whereas children don't often have that ability to know how to change the world around them to help them be able to regulate. And that's what we have to learn as parents. You know, it's okay. So I have to say that's um, a really great thing for parents to listen to through the lens of, you know, me being a stay at home mom at the time or whatever, uh, and working in a classroom. I was also a nursery school teacher. So I was around kid energy as the primary caregiver and a nursery school teacher with little people all the time. And I am by no means throwing my ex-husband under the bus because he's a wonderful human being. But to your point about difference and experience and context, you know, he would go off into the corporate world and be in quiet adult meetings and have a stressful work job and come home and the energy of the household, he would find everything very loud and rambunctious. And I wouldn't perceive it that way at all. I'm like, we have children, like, this is what kids do. Um, you know, why can't you, why can't you acclimate to this? But I, but I do appreciate it's like, oh my God, if you've been working with adults all day who have the social compunction to take turns and wait until they're called upon and, you know, whatever, and you walk in the door at the end of the day and you're exhausted and you're tired and you got two kids pulling on your pant leg and daddy, daddy, do this and daddy, daddy, see what I did and daddy, daddy. And you're just like, oh, too much. And we had to practice what that transition was like. And I didn't pick up on that energy because I was living in it all day and calibrated to it and was fine with it. And I'm a high energy person, but we were a family and we had to figure out that transition because we had to accommodate all, not just the children, not just me and, and neither hushing our kids just for my, my husband of the day, we had to figure it out between us, but that was like a problem we had to work on. And that's, and that's where it comes with like the, the ability to tolerate the environment that you're in. So that's a very, like, that's the OT world that we talk about is that it, it will change in the environment. So he could have probably handled, um, you know, people talking loud in the office because it would have been a different environment. But when he came home having children, it's a different decibel of sounds, like it's different, right? The needs are different. Um, the emotional needs are going to be different. Like, so then you have to recognize the environment at work is very different and the rules of how people work together at work are different than the rules of, of at home. Um, and that's why I say to, to parents all the time, it's that you have to recognize your perception of the event as well as your child's, because what you see is not necessarily the way your child sees it. So you often need to look at it from your child's perspective. It's so interesting that I see people at both ends of the spectrum, because I also work with families where, you know, they're trying to have family dinner and the child is getting up and down and up and down and up and down from the table. And the parent can be more in the permissive side of the parenting style where they're like, well, you know, he can't really sit still and he's kind of a busy body and, you know, he, and they kind of give permission to this up and down, up and down, up and down. And here I come in as a counselor saying, when are you going to socialize your child to say that in our family, you sit at the table and if you want to get down, then you're dismissed and that's fine. But then, you know, the next meal comes along and how do we find that gray area between there's a fidgety kid, but we got to socialize them to say, yeah, but you're not, you're, you're not going to fit into society if you're jumping up and down and here and there and everywhere. And maybe you can't now, but you need to like develop the capacity and we got to work on that rather than getting a ticket, you know, to say, well, he can't, it's out of his, 
It's out of his abilities. Therefore, we don't train for it. Did, did I state that question well enough? I'm yeah, no, no, you did for sure. And I, I'm trying to think of a, a way to, to relate it to um, an adult um, scenario. Versus, can I say, and then the other end of the spectrum is the kid that gets down from the table and the parent who says, you know, I came from a strong British upbringing where children are seen and never heard and you should sit at the table and have perfect manners. And if you don't, when you're four years old, then that's a disrespect to the family. It's disrespect to the food I made. And now I'm dysregulated because I take your behavior as being an affront to me and what I've done, and it's like, oh, wow, that's a lot of storytelling for a little fidgety four-year-old that isn't there yet. Um, you know, so it's bo- I see both I see both ends of the spectrum there. For sure. And I, I think it's like if, if you have a, a really bad, like a mosquito bite and it's super, super itchy, right? And, and you, it's sitting there and it's so itchy and you are not allowing somebody to scratch it, it, it gets more and more intense in its itchiness if that makes sense, right? It becomes your focus. That's all you have. And so until you have the ability to kind of scratch that mosquito bite, then you can calm yourself down. So what I say to parents when I'm working with them is that you have to recognize some of your child's ability to, to learn how to regulate their system. So for instance, if children actually need to move in order to self-regulate, Parents have this all the time. There's adults that go for long runs and then they come back and then they can focus on work for four hours, right? They work out at the gym in the morning and then they feel like they can get more accomplished. We have naturally built that into our system. Children don't have that ability. So if a child has been sitting at school all day, comes home, doesn't have the ability to maybe you know, do any activities or exercise, and then you get them to sit down, they are going to have this itch that they need to keep moving because they haven't fulfilled that need or desire to self be able to self-regulate if their only way to self-regulate is through movement then you need to give them the opportunity to move so what i say to parents is if you need your child to sit down for a while and they have this itch that they they need to move give them 15 minutes of movement dinner's almost ready let's have a quick dance party let's do some you know i have a sensory path that you can put in your home let's do some sensory jumps let's do some frog walks let's do some crab walks bunch of different things and then it's like okay now let's sit down and have some dinner you have now kind of allowed them to scratch that itch on their leg but you haven't um before that they sit down and now you say now it's time to sit and then you can install those boundaries where you're like no this is the this is where we're sitting and then it takes away their desire to move because you've just given them the opportunity love all of that what a great what a great clear example of of piecing apart those different components that's so respectful to the child and their needs and yet so respectful to the idea that we need to train them to fit into a greater context because that's the whole part about belonging if you're if you're uh, you know acting in ways that you are in your friends faces and you you get labeled as the kid in the class it's jumping around and intrusive you're not helping that child, you know, if they're jumping in the head of the line and everyone goes, oh, who's that kid? And why are they always getting corrected? We're not doing them any favors if we don't help them learn some of these social rules. But but we can also be so respectful to the fact that, yeah, so what's a great way to get that resolved without discombobulating the social order that you need to work and find your place within. And these are so, these answers are so creative. Shake your wiggles out before dinner. You know, like I, lo- I love it. 
But it's the same thing. Like people don't realize the sensitivity or think about cooking dinner. When you cook dinner in a house, oftentimes the smell is throughout the house, right? There's a lot of different sounds. The fans are on or there's cutting or, you know, opening and closing of different things. And then on top of it, there's, um, there's a smell, there's a sound, there's often lights going on. That's a lot of a big sensory environment that sometimes can overwhelm a child. And so sometimes even separating your child from that environment before you cook dinner and say, you know what, if they're calm, if their ability to self-regulate is actually reading a book in a chair, put the chair in their room away from the kitchen, let them read their book before dinner so that they can be calm away from the noise and the busyness of the cooking. And then you'll call them when dinner's ready. But giving them that heads up that you're being cooking dinner can actually help you to separate them from the sensory overload of actually cooking dinner. So I'm going to go back to my, to, 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 because I'm hearing it through the lens of parents that are going like, well, oh God, but I've also heard that you're, that if you have a picky eater, you should involve them in the kitchen. And this is time that we could be bonding as a family. How am I supposed to know? How do I piece this all together as a lay parent? How do I know if my kid's having troubles? How do I, how do I know? I can't, I, I'm, I'm not skilled in this. I'm not an occupational therapist. I'm just a parent and I want to be curious, but I don't know what I'm seeing or what I'm doing. How do I know? When do I get an assessment? When do I get access to this information? Should, should every parent hire an occupational therapist? Uh, do I wait until the behavior is disturbing? Like how do, how do you, how do you know as a parent where, where the next steps are now that you've got this awareness that we should be creative and maybe there's more to know and learn about our kids. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book is I find that occupational therapy is not as mainstream as it should be. Um, it's often separated into some other category. It's harder to get. Um, there's really long waiting lists everywhere for occupational therapy, especially in Canada. Um, and so that's why I created this book so that people could kind of think through a few di different scenarios um, it's really targeted at every child. So every child is going to do this. And if in my, in an ideal world, I would say that parents should meet with an occupational therapist when they have children, just to generally get an overview of how bodies work and how, how you react to the environment. Because again, we have learned that as we have grown up, but we've never really drawn attention to it unless you took a psychology degree or you took a socio, like, you know, learned about people and learned about bodies. So you would go, you'd go like you go for your annual checkup, you go to your eye doctor, you go to your dentist and you go to your, your uh, OT. A hundred percent. I would, I mean, that's what I would suggest because yeah. one of the things I, I take people through and I take people through a program and this is why I'm trying to make it a little bit more mainstream as I take them through a general program of let's look at your child and you tell me some of their sensory needs. What do you see that they crave all the time? What do they avoid all the time? And when they, when they are able to pinpoint some of these things and we say, do you know what it means when they crave swinging on a swing for hours at a time, right? That's a vestibular system need. That's something that they are craving in, our, in your ear stimulation, right? They want to be on the swing, giving them the opportunity to do that inside a house, right? When they are feeling overwhelmed could look like them being on a rocking chair. So an investment of a rocking chair in your house might give you the ability to have them be a little bit more calm before bedtime. And so just being able to transfer some of these things into the home helps with bedtime routines, helps with all these different other struggles that parents have. And so I think recognizing that you don't have to have a child that's over the top or have a teacher that says your child is struggling. I think we can do, we can do well for our children just to have a conversation with a really you know, interesting friend who has these really cool facts is kind of what I'm trying to say to parents is that it's not something that your child has to be 
bad or be doing things wrong. We're just trying to make you be able to connect with your child a little bit easier. Probably one of the biggest pain points for a parent is having to deal with a child who's angry, melting down, exploding, violent, hitting, kidding, biting. And that could be a toddler, but that could also be a very angry teenager. And of course, how do we respond? Often we have trouble managing our anger too when it comes to parenting. So I've put together a wonderful workshop. We're not just going to talk about take a deep breath and calm yourself down. We're going to look at the psychology behind anger, its usefulness, some of the cognitive distortions and our private logic that goes with that, and teach you as well some tools and techniques for in the moment. So check out the link in the show notes for registration. Sign up fast. It's coming up soon and we have limited space. See you there. So, and how beautiful is that to know that whatever, all the DNA genetic material that happened to make you the one little individual snowflake that you're going to be on the planet and, and how you're going to meet your best potential means, you know, creating this like best fit and getting outside of that mentality of broken or not, you know, need having an assessment and getting like an IEP or getting accommodation. And everyone worries so much that if I do this assessment, that my kid's going to think there's something wrong with them and they're going to get treated differently. And, and parents are worried that even just doing the assessment is going to be traumatic for the child. Uh, and we're trying to normalize that. So can, can you speak a little bit to the process? Like what, what does an assessment look like? Where does it go? How can we take the fears out of parents around that? So, the, so that we do make it more mainstream. Um, and that's where that's where it's really challenging because I am trying to change the trajectory a little bit in in this relaunch of the company that I had a few years ago. So I'm trying to target parents because I'm trying to take the child out of that scenario where they have to be in a, in a full assessment. I don't necessarily like being in an assessment is great. I think that there's value in having an OT sit down with a child, but I feel like the OT doesn't necessarily grasp the full struggles that a parent would have in a home scenario because child's going to act differently with a therapist, right? In the one-on-one, you just don't get that same perspective that parents are struggling with, you know, during meal times and so on and so forth. So what, when you're trying to get a child to, when you want to have an assessment, you can request an OT assessment and they will break down into a lot of different categories of, you know, your child's fine motor abilities. How can they hold a pencil? How do they work with seeing things and doing things? Um, how do they do with their gross motor moving around? How's their cognition? How much do they recognize and understand? It goes through a very, there's very structured um, assessments that will be very detailed into where limitations are with your child. And you're going to pay for these privately, do you think? This is not to... Yeah, that would be that would be private. Yeah, private pay. Yeah. There's OTs that will come into the school board. That's often covered by the schools um, that an OT will come in and do an assessment. And they look at the classroom and how a child is functioning in the classroom. And so they'll come in and do some of the assessments with the child in the school with the classwork activity and see if they can make some modifications to how they're doing stuff at school. I'm taking it one step backwards in saying, you know, some of these things parents already recognize at home because they have been living with it since the child's been born. And so even before it gets to the point that it, it involves or creates some tension at school, there are things that can be done that can maybe change the way that the school approaches the child. One of them being the huge key with belonging. How, do, how can you help my child to feel like they belong in the classroom? 
And I think part of it we've lost over the years is the sense of a, it takes a village to raise a child. And so we are very siloed right now in terms of like families with their child. You know, we don't necessarily have that community around us anymore where, you know, your child can learn from other parents, other kids, especially over COVID. It hasn't been that you can, you know, your kids don't go to other kids' houses very often anymore. Even in school, it's, you know, that you have to stay in your own spot a lot more frequently now. There's not as much interaction. And so I think creating a community takes a little bit more energy because you have to be able to learn how to communicate to other people. So getting a full assessment is very, is a lot more structured. And that would be if you recognize that there are certain key features that your child struggles with constantly, you recognize that it always is with fine motor. Every time they're asked to write something, then I would progress to an assessment where you do a full assessment where they sit down and then they can weed out what part of the fine motor writing is is the, the part that they're struggling with the most, right? The same thing with, with some of the um, sensory needs, like, you know, different sensory environments. You first recognize and notice there's consistency, like they always react poorly on the bus. Um, the bus environment is, is struggling with them. And then they also do it in the hallway at school. And then you can meet with an occupational therapist to come up with specific strategies to say, these are what you could do in, a, in those kinds of environments. So first starting with the, what can you recognize as the consistency would be more of the general. That's what I'm trying to do with the education part of it. And then if you notice specifics and then you need detailed help, then you go to the assessment part. And all you're looking at is how can the school help your child be a little bit more successful in the long run? And how are parents at advocating? Is it better? I mean, I, I'm assuming that by the time you've paid for an assessment, which I like, I recommend even for um, EAPs and other um a psych ed assessments, if you pay for it privately, yeah, it's expensive, but the wait time is less and it comes to you privately and you can decide what you want to share with the school. It could just be part of it. Otherwise, if the school pays, they own it and it goes, it gets passed on with your, with your child. And sometimes that, you know, it could be, there's could be benefits to not sharing everything with the school, just, just select parts. Then you can advocate, right? You can advocate better. A hundred percent. And so there is private OTs that do it outside. There's there's the OTs that are paid for by the school. So it's the same kind of scenario. Um, and you have to just take everything. Like I, I say to people, you have to have a vision of what your child, who your child, who you want your child to be when they grow up. We're not just trying to get through, you know, grade one, or we're not trying to get through grade five. You know, you want to create this. Um, you want to recognize that your child is going to grow up to an adult. And what do you want them to be as an adult? Um, and that's your vision for your child. And then you want to take all these assessments and you want to say, you know, what are they doing to help my child get to become that adult that I believe they can be? And that's where I always say, you know, that's where these assessments and these this information that you gain is going to give you the ability to have the language to communicate to other people. It's going to give you the resources. It's going to give you the um, background knowledge to be able to then, you know, say to whoever is working with your child, how you can help them reach their greatest potential. So if people use the, your services, there's, there's, because you, you're now an entrepreneur and you're, you've gone bigger into, to, into making some world change around this. It's not just getting, not just your work in the world is not just, Hey, I can be a really great occupational therapist for your child. Um, you're really advocating for creating social change around everybody seeing things through this lens and getting kids the help that they need. Correct. Uh, yeah, that's, that is my goal, because I believe that every child should have the ability to reach their potential. And when we 
when we focus so highly on behaviors, we are missing that background. And that background for that child, and I talk about this in my book, like if we are just dealing with a child who's having problems at school and we're missing the things that are happening at home, then we're missing the, the big perspective. So that's why I struggle with just a school OT because they focus on the school needs or just, um, right, just a, an OT that focuses just on mental health. Although it's important, it's not holistic. So we're not looking at the whole picture. And so my goal through this book and getting this out into the world is trying to influence the change by recognizing the whole picture of the child. Um, and so, yes, I am trying with a social change to do that and in creating a, a new way of reaching out to children, because I think that's going to be the first step that we need to look at before we kind of micro go into the specific behaviors. Amazing. And, um, and, and, and perhaps going as far as, because I've had people say this, this is where Adlerians need to show up too, you know, Teachers aren't trained in any of this when they, I mean, I work with so many teachers. I come from a family of teachers. <laughs> it's not in their training. You know, it's no fault or deficit of theirs. And they're given a lot to do. And especially with COVID and trying to catch up. And, you know, a teacher said, oh my God, you want us to like do this report and that report. And we got to teach them. Now we got to teach them about bullying and consent and, you know, this and that. And like, we, you know, we were hired to be educators. And now you want us to socialize your kids and do all this too. And it's too much. It's too much. And, you know, they get really discouraged. Teachers can really feel underappreciated and overburdened with everything. Um, but I really believe that in, in teacher education and in what we, and what we ask teachers to do is to, there's a policy and an education part where teachers need to be up to speed on all of this and to not feel the pressure of, okay, well, that's all really fine that you're telling me that your kid needs this or this, but I have to get my first report card out by the third week you know, or the sixth week of, of school to do an assessment. And we all have to work together at every level, the parent, the family, the school, the education, the school boards, the, like at every single level, we need to get this information so that there isn't this conflict of resources or conflicts of greater goals that I, and I feel like teachers are sometimes the middle person squeezed out by all of this. And I, and I agree. I mean, that's where I think the responsibility of a teacher figuring out if a child has eaten in the last day is not their responsibility. And I feel like there is just a divide in our society right now with being able to communicate when we are a family in need, um, right? So if your child struggles and, and you have struggled with getting food for your child, right? We, it, we should be, I mean, obviously that we're discouraged by that. We want to make sure that that becomes a priority that the family has access to food or that we recognize that off the bat. So we are not trying to force education on a child who hasn't eaten because that's not going to be their priority, right? So, it, but it, we need to open it up to be, the, for the parents to be able to communicate, you know what, we're really struggling to put food on the table. And then they can come to school a few minutes early, have those morning breakfasts like they used to do, like when they took that away with COVID, that really, you know, caused a lot of um, struggles with a lot of kids. Yeah. Because you can't eat, you can't focus on school when you haven't had food in your belly. But then it's interesting because they get in trouble because they can't focus. So we're now targeting the wrong end of the spectrum where we need to remember that, that if, you do, if you do the first part, then they will be able to have a better time at school. 
Yeah. Right. So I just, from a teacher perspective, it is hard to recognize it all. It's hard to, but we want to try and open that communication and make it a little bit more flowing from parent to, to teacher and back and forth, because again, it's a village that's going to raise the child. And if we can have that open communication and just be able to recognize, you know what, as a mom, I'm struggling right now with depression. I can't really function. I can't get out of bed. And when my child comes to school and they are struggling at school, maybe they just need a little bit more, you know, of that sidearm or that, you know, smile or that you're doing good, Joey, like, or you're doing good, Johnny, like rather than criticize them because they are exhausted or, you know, you know, having issues at school because we recognize that they are having struggles at home. So I want that perspective to come that, that teachers are more, you know, not lenient with the child per se, but recognize that doing a little bit more of that belonging attachment with them for a child that has some struggles at home will then lead to a better, a more successful day rather than them having these outbursts. So, so well said. And then I would say, and then again, just taking it to the holism village uh, perspective and to not have a teacher who worries that when she gets her job evaluation, that her job is going to be at risk because when the standardized testing came, she didn't have enough of her grade three students at a certain rate and therefore it reflects on her teaching as opposed to saying, yeah, because half my kids are living with depressed parents who, and have food insecurity and I'm making the right humanistic response to these kids and um, I don't want to have my job on the line so that I can't prioritize myself. And that's where I'm saying we, we, it has to be at every system that we, sure. that we see this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they have to put more resources. Like this is where I, I meet with school boards and we talk about it and they say, we just don't have funding. And then, so this becomes like, it is a whole bigger social issue. Right. Um, and that's where the advocacy part from my perspective, getting this book out there, getting, being able to have a seat at the table to talk about this a little bit more is also part of my, my company mandate. Um, because I really feel like it needs to be a top-down approach. If you give a teacher some extra hands in a, in a classroom that can do with this, yes, the teacher can focus a little bit more on the education, but then you have those people to give, you know, the, you know, the sidearm or the smiles or hand out the stickers or just be able to be present for those other kids that need maybe that extra attention. But I, we're taking the focus away from the behavior because as soon as we focus on the behavior and the negative behavior and send kids to the principal's office, it's just a ripple effect to a lifetime often of future th- problems because they get recognized for these behaviors, not necessarily for the other things that are going on. Yeah. Beautiful. Oh, Sabrina, you're doing such, such important work. Uh, and I'm, I, I want parents to know that um, we're going to put up all the links to anything <laughs> to be able to get in contact with you because I hope we've been inspirational and, and parents will reach out. But let, let me, is there anything else that you want to make sure that parents take away from our chat together? And then I want to give you a minute to do a humble brag on, on <laughs> next steps and people connecting with you that I'll put in the show notes. I just, I really, I really challenge parents, no matter how old your children are, even teenagers, I've got teens at home now too, is just really have that sense of curiosity, really take that step back when you are frustrated with your child, when your child is having these, these reactions to something out of the ordinary, take that step back and think about what this looks like from them, listen to them, acknowledge maybe their perspective to be able to say, okay, I can see how you can see the world this way. Um, but we just need to have that lens of curiosity instead of that really reactive tendency. Um, and any child, like even little babies are the same way, right? So 
really take that lens of curiosity before you react negatively to your child. Beautiful. And so we're, so spend, spend a, take a moment here on air with uh, these listeners to say um, what, what's next for you. You've got this book. I'm going to put up the, where people can find you any, anything upcoming that you'd like to shamelessly promote <laughs> got a, a talk, something going on at a school board. Yeah. So this understanding the child, the occupational therapy way is available everywhere on Amazon, um, Indigo, Barnes and Nobles. Um, it, you can order it through your local bookstore. Um, it is a really, it's, it's sold a little bit as a academic book because they also wanted it to go, the publisher also wanted it to be able to go out to teachers and therapists and to be able to get into that world as well. But it's written in a way, and, and Allison can attest to this too, it's written in a really easy to read manner, um, a lot of story based. So it's written so that parents um, can read it and really learn from it as well. And um, upcoming soon, if you're interested, I ha will be having a online course that you can take that will actually take you through the step by steps of some of these recognition of your yourself and your child. Um, and it will be a five part series that if you can, if you want are interested in it, there's a sign up to be notified when that comes live. Um, and so that's my hope is to get it out there in the world. Great. I will put that link to, to get the notification for when the series comes up uh, for the online course. And yes, I will attest to the fact that I enjoyed the book. The um, You've done a beautiful job of, of bringing the learning to life through the, the, the incredible stories th that are woven in that like clearly you're a woman who's worked in the field because as you're saying the examples, I'm like, yep, yep, that's right. That's that's how... <laughs> Uh, you will see you will see your children in these pages somewhere and be enlightened. And it's a it's an easing, engaging read. Uh, I'm so glad you've made this contribution. And, and um, I'm so glad that you gave your time to share it with the world on my podcast today, Sabrina. Thank you. And, and also if parents do want to reach out and they just want to have a one on one. I do do one on one appointments, too, that they can reach me out through my company, which is called Enabling Adaptations. And I do it all virtually so that way parents can just reach out wherever they are. So it takes away that ability to be in a local area, especially for parents that are more rural um, and that you can reach out and have a chat with me and you can just book appointments online. Wonderful. And again, I look in the show notes, folks, I'll put all of that up there. And yeah, I think telehealth and and, and all these uh, Zoom meetings and different platforms have been a real lifesaver to parents who can't necessarily step away from work to drive to an appointment or can't stop their child caregiving. So I think it's the way of the future. So I'm glad you're set up for that. And, um, and hopefully the phone will start ringing and you'll start emails will start coming in and you'll get appointments and we'll keep changing the world in the right direction. Thank you for all you've done. No problem. Thank you so much, Allison. Thank you. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.